Well, that was just a fantastic time of worship. Isn't it good to recalibrate? Do you remember, remember before everybody had a GPS on their phone, you used to have to buy a GPS thing and attach it to your car? Do you remember when they first came out, if it said turn left and you didn't turn left, it would say, recalculating, recalculating, rec and you're like, shut up, lady, you know, so recalculating. You know, that's what we do on a Sunday morning. We may have gone off track somewhere during the week, but we recalculate. Our spiritual GPS aligns itself with the King and His kingdom. And so that we can go into the new, the new week having recalculated and gotten our lives back on track. So, we are back to our message series called Kingdom People, and uh, I want to start today, uh, we're, we're going to do a message today called Ecclesia, but before we do that, I want to start by reading you um, one of the little short parables, it's actually two parables, they're just about a sentence each, that Jesus told about the kingdom of God, and it's in Matthew chapter 13. So we're going to go to Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, and remember, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are exactly the same thing, Okay. In Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, it always says the kingdom of God. In Matthew's, it always says the kingdom of heaven. I told you this because it was written to Jewish people, and they, they didn't like to say the word God in case they were taking His name in vain. So instead of saying, God bless you, they would say, heaven bless you. And instead of saying the kingdom of God, they would say the kingdom of heaven, right? It's the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is not when you die and go to heaven. It is whatever the king of heaven, who is God, rules over. We'll get to that. Okay, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a treasure. It's like a treasure. It is something incredibly valuable. The kingdom of God is not a burden. It's not like oh, I want my sins forgiven, and I want to go to heaven when I die, but now I've got the burden of having to live up to the standards of the kingdom. of It's not a burden. It's not an impediment on your life. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. Now, you might not see it that way. You know, you might, it's possible that you could have found treasure in your attic, and you don't know it's treasure, Occasionally, you'll find someone that's going through a rummage sale, and for five bucks, they bought a Picasso that was worth $10 million. Nobody knew the value of that treasure. We need to get an understanding of the value of the kingdom of God. It is a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In other words, it's not obvious to everybody. You go out there today, go to West Ed Mall or something like that, and there are people walking about their business oblivious to the fact that there is a treasure that they could find. It seems to be hidden from them. Their eyes are not open. Their hearts are not awakened. Hidden in a field. In his excitement. Everybody shout excitement. 
Now, it's good to be excited about things. Maybe you have a sports team that you support and you're excited about that. Maybe there's a TV show that you like and a new season's coming out and you're excited about that. But can I just tell you, if, there, if you get more excited about anything else than you do about the king and his kingdom, then you do not yet understand what an amazing treasure and gift this is that God has given you. You should be excited about this. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. <clears throat> in other words, as valuable as other things in our lives are, may be, nothing compares to the value of the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice perils. When he discovers a peril of great value, he sold everything uh, he owned and bought it. This is something really important. This is something really valuable. This is something that we should be excited about. And if we're not excited about, it's because we don't understand what a treasure it is, and therefore we need a bigger understanding of the kingdom. I want to just show you for a minute where we're going with this. Can you put up the next slide? So last month, we did a three-part mini-series called Kingdom Come, and we looked at three topics. The first week, we looked at the advancing kingdom. The second week, we looked at the gospel of the kingdom. And the third week, we looked at the radical kingdom, going back to the roots of it and discovering what it was meant to be. That was like a Bible, that was like a big Bible study we did on what the kingdom of God is. This month, we are doing a three-part one called Kingdom Community, because God's kingdom is over the whole world, but it's also over His community, the church, and that's what we're going to look at this month. Today, we're looking at Ecclesia, what the church is. Next week, we will look at the etiquette of the kingdom. The Bible says we should know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And the third week, we will look at the enthusiasm, the spirit-filled enthusiasm that the church should have, because when we discover the kingdom, we're excited. Are we? Are we excited when we discover? Right, okay. Then we'll take a week off, and next month, we will finish with a three-part one called Kingdom Culture. We will look at how to live in the culture of the kingdom, how to be a dedicated disciple, how to have faithful families, and how to discover and live your kingdom career. God's kingdom is over the whole world. It is also over the kingdom community, the church, and it's also over your life, your family, and your future. Okay? So that's where we're going. Um, let's get into some definitions. What's the definition of the kingdom again? We've been looking at this, but let's, here's a shorter version. God's let, let's read this together. Let's read it out loud. God's kingdom is the rule of God. Wherever God is king, His kingdom is there. It is God's new way of living and His new world, which He is in the process of creating amongst us and through us. And we enter the kingdom through spiritual birth by faith in Christ. When I put my faith in Christ, when I turn away from my old life, I believe in Jesus, and I put my faith in Christ, I am born again into the kingdom. And now I am learning a new way of living. 
And now I'm discovering that I'm part of a new community and a new world that God is creating. And in my life, as I live this new way, and in the community that I'm a part of, Jesus is Lord. God is our King of my life and of our community. Okay, so that's God's kingdom. But today, we're looking at a word called ecclesia. You can, it's a Greek word. You can pronounce it two ways. Some people say ecclesia, like ecclesiastical, you know, and some people say ecclesia. I'm not Greek, and even someone who was Greek today might speak different than someone who was Greek 2,000 years ago, so I don't really care how it's pronounced, but there's the word here, ecclesia, ecclesia. Whenever you read in the Bible the word church in English, if you went back to the ancient Greek manuscripts where it says church in the English, it says ecclesia in the Greek. So, what does that mean? Well, the word ecclesia means an assembly, especially the popular assembly of ancient Athens. I'll explain that in a moment. But then that same word is used to mean a congregation or a church. And the word ecclesia is from the Greek, which means a group of people called out of one place and gathered together in another place for a particular purpose. Now, that word ecclesia, I want you to imagine that we lived in ancient Athens for a moment, right? In ancient Athens, probably only 30 to 40% of the people who lived there were actually citizens. The rest were not citizens. Some of, a lot of them were residents, and a, a lot of them were indentured servants that were paying off a debt, and a lot of them were also slaves. So, not everybody was a citizen. It, there were there were only a limited number of people within the city who were actually citizens, but they lived among the non-citizens. Everybody lived together in their communities and so on. But when something, when the citizens wanted something to change in the city, they would leave their homes and businesses and communities, and they would gather together, kind of like at City Hall or something like that. They would gather together for the ecclesia, okay, for the ecclesia. And as they are together there, they would then discuss the, the problems, the issues that were affecting them, and they would they would come to conclusions and make decisions about things, and then they would decide to petition the king or to petition Caesar to ask for a change in that. For instance, imagine you're a citizen of Athens, and there's been a lot of, a lot of robberies in the, the community that you live in, the part of the city that you live in, and you realize there's not enough security in that area. Now, if you're a non-citizen, tough luck. You don't have any choice in the matter, okay? But when the ecclesia is called together, everybody would leave their homes, businesses, and communities who are citizens and would gather together, and they would discuss the fact that there's been a lot of violence and robberies, and we need more, we need more um, security. We want to forbid and put a stop to the crime that's taking place, and we want to pass a resolution that allows new 
security or police or guards to come in here. That was called binding and loosing. We want to bind or stop something happening, and we want to pass a motion so that something good can happen. We can loose that to happen. And then they would send a petition to the king, asking the king to grant them their request. Isn't it funny, when it comes to the Christian church, the word that the Bible uses is not a religious word like temple or synagogue. It is ecclesia, because we are just like that. We are all citizens, not citizens of Athens, citizens of the kingdom of God. But we live in a city scattered among lots and lots of non-citizens, people who do not believe in Jesus, who have not submitted to the kingdom of God. We live our lives among non-citizens, and there are neighbors, and we love our neighbors, and there are work colleagues, and all of that kind of stuff. But there are times when all the citizens of the kingdom are gathered together in city hall to petition the King of Kings so that His his presence will come, our prayers will be answered, and changes will be made. And then we leave here, and we are scattered again, and go back to our communities. But we're not only citizens when we're here, we're also citizens when we're scattered. We're, we are the church gathered, and the church scattered. We are the ecclesia. So, let's look at these two things. The church gathered and the church scattered. So, here we go, the gathered church. When the church—go back, back one, please. When the church gathers together, like we are, we are gathering together today, when the church gathers together, when, it, when the church is together, not just for a service, but for any, any project that we're doing, any ministry that we're launching, anything like that, when the ecclesia are gathered— then there's supposed to be three characteristics about that. First of all, we are supposed to be united. We are united. Now, we might have different fashion senses, and we might have different musical tastes, and we might read different authors, and I don't mean we're united about everything. This ain't a cult. You understand that? We all don't have to wear the same clothes and uh, we don't have to all say the same words, and we don't all have to watch the same TV shows, or maybe if you're in a cult, you're not allowed to watch any TV shows, I don't know. But, you know, we are all unique individuals. We're all masterpieces that God has created, but we're united about one thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. God is the King, and this is His kingdom, and we are part of it. We are united around Jesus, okay? So, we are the united church. Secondly, when we come together, the church, God has placed in the church leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that some Christians are better than other Christians. It means some Christians are, uh, have been gifted to do this job, and others have been gifted to do that job. That's all it means. But there needs to be some kind of leadership in the church. And that means that there also needs to be a healthy followership in the church as well. Now, from time to time, I will read something that a Christian has written about how we're all one in Jesus, and therefore there shouldn't be any leaders at all. But the Bible talks about leaders, as we shall see. Now, leaders don't 
don't lead your private life. They lead the gathered church. If leaders try to lead your private life, come into your house and tell you what you can eat and what you can drink and what you can watch on TV. No, that's not what leaders do. You, you've got Jesus there to do that, okay? You've got the Holy Spirit in you. You're living your own journey of faith. But when we make decisions about what the gathered church do, there needs to be unity. There needs to be leadership to make decisions, and there needs to be a followership as well. No, there shouldn't be any leaders. That would be like saying, let's have an elementary school, but let's not have any teachers or principal. The elementary students will also be the teachers, will also be the janitors, will also be the, the principal, and will also form the school board. No, we need leaders in there to make sure the elementary school actually does the things. It's, if you put all the elementary kids in charge of it, I'll tell you something. You ain't going to learn math. You're going to be eating ice cream and bubble gum for lunch every day and playing all day long, right? Somebody needs to come and say, hey, we're not doing that. Everybody over here, this is what we're doing. So, those are the three things that we need to have. Let's have a little look here at the early church in Acts 2. All the believers, how many of the believers? All the believers devoted what? None of the believers said, well, I'm not going back to church because I missed it last Sunday and nobody called me on the phone to ask where I was. Oh, oh, you're not going to be a Christian unless we go running after you and pulling you back all the time. Is that what it is? You don't really love God enough to be committed yourself. You need all of us to do it for you. Because one day we will all die and we'll stand before God and we're going to be alone. So maybe we should devote ourselves, okay? We have a part to play. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place. The gathered ecclesia, like all the citizens of the kingdom being brought to city hall. The gathered ecclesia. And they shared everything they had. They sold their extra property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day and met in homes that's going to be important, for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is a picture, a little snapshot of what the early Christian church in Jerusalem is like. And there are principles in there that should speak to us and apply to us. Now, we don't need to dress the way the Christians dressed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We don't need to cook the food and eat the food that they ate. You know, we don't have to have the, the housing situation. 
we've got indoor plumbing and toilets that flush and internet access, and all of that's great, right? We are not living their life, but their principles they were all united. They were together. They were happy to meet one another. They said, hey, let's go out for a meal together. They were fellowshipping. They were united. They were devoting themselves. There was leadership here. There was apostolic leaders bringing the Word of the Lord and saying, this is what God wants us to know and to learn so that we can grow together. They were being followers. They were choosing, I want to be a learner. I want to be a fellowshipper. I want to be a prayer, prayer, prayerer, prayer warrior, right? I want to do all, I want to be, I want to be part of this. I am united and I am following. And by the way, the leaders are also followers and all of us are followers of Jesus. There's a really, there's a, this is quite a long passage I'm going to show you, but there's a well-known passage of Scripture about the church, and it's Ephesians chapter 4. And when we look at it, there's actually three paragraphs there. And the first paragraph is all about how the church should be united. The second paragraph is about how the church should have leadership. And the third paragraph is the benefits of followership. Let me show you. Ephesians 4. Paul says, now look, I've put a word here at the end, unity. Okay, that's what this is about, the first paragraph. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Do you know the Bible is full of one another's? Love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. There's even a verse that says, sing songs to one another. So, making allowances for one another's faults because of your love. Well, I don't go to church because Christians are hypocrites because they've all got faults. Yeah, you're a big hypocrite too. You don't even live up to your own standards. Come and join the happy fellowship of hypocrites here. We are, yeah, we're all hypocrites. None of us live up to what we really believe, but thank God we're forgiven hypocrites. We're redeemed hypocrites. We're loved by Jesus, and we're trying to be less hypocritical and more Christ-like as we journey through life. We all have faults. Listen, it might shock you, but I'm going to tell you this. I've got some faults. And if that doesn't shock you, I'm going to tell you something that does shock you. And so do you. <laughs> Look. Make allowance for one another's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Don't allow anything that grieves the Holy Spirit and breaks our spiritual fellowship. Binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body. There's only one church. There's only one body. It's not like when you get to heaven, God's going to say, that's the Catholic room. The Presbyterians go over here. The Baptists sit way at the back, and the Pentecostals have got all their tambourines down the front. That's not what it's like in heaven. We may have split ourselves off into different groups here on earth, unfortunately, but when God looks at His church, He sees one church. 
One church, unfortunately, that calls itself different names and all bicker with one another, but one body, the body of Christ, okay? For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. Listen, there might be Christians that you disagree with. There might be Christians that you're upset with, but you want to know something? We all talk to the same Father when we wake up in the morning. We've all been saved by the same blood of the same Savior and we're all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. So can we just get our act together and realize we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're supposed to be united? Unity. Next paragraph. However, although we're all united and we're all equal, we've all been given different jobs. He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. We've all got gifts, but look, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. We've all got gifts we use in our life, but for the church, the gifts are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility, so they have a responsibility, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Sometimes in churches, you'll hear people say, yeah, we need people to help with the kids or with the youth or something, and nobody wants to do it, so let's all just dig deep and hire another couple of members of staff to do it. Do you know what the job of the members of staff is? It's not to do the work of the ministry. It's to goad you into doing the work of the ministry. Come on, get involved. Do you see that? Their responsibility is to run the church so that you can lie in your bed doing nothing. Is that what it says? No. It says their responsibility is to equip you, to train you, to motivate you to discover your gift so that you can then serve in the area of the church that you're supposed to serve in. This will continue until we all come to such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Leadership. Leadership is needed in the church to equip the rest of the church so that we will all become mature. If you put all the kindergarten kids or all the elementary school kids in charge of their own school and there was no leaders, nobody would mature. Nobody, there's no one there who's further along the journey of life than they are. And leadership is to help people mature. And in the third paragraph is followership. Look, he says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every new wind of teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of His body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Now look at this last verse. As each part each part, does its own special work, 
it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Do you see, you see that God, God is saying, look, here is a church. Be united. You all have the same Father. You're all saved by the same Savior. You're all indwelt by the same Spirit. Be united. Now, I've put leaders in the church to make sure that it goes in the right direction, to make sure that everybody's getting on board and getting on the bus and so on. And, but then every other individual needs to be a follower, a follower of Jesus, first of all, and a follower with the rest of the community that they're a part of. Now, when you become, when you become a pastor, you spend the rest of your life reading books about leadership, going to seminars about leadership, listening to podcasts about leadership. And one of the great trainers of Christian leaders for many decades was Peter Wagner. And I read this quote from him, and I thought it was fascinating. He said this, there seems to be a curious assumption that while leaders need special instruction for exercising their role, followers need no such instruction. The more I study church leadership, the more I disagree with this assumption. You think about it. Just go on the internet and search leadership seminars. Loads of them will come up. Then search followership seminars. You won't find a single one because everyone wants to be a leader and no one wants to be a follower. But even leaders need to be followers. I, you know, I'm a follower, first of all. I'm doing my best to be a follower of Jesus, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, to follow the teaching of Scripture. But I also have other Christian leaders that coach me and train me as well because we all need to be followers as well as leaders. So the gathered church, you are the citizens of the kingdom living out there in society among non-citizens who are your neighbors and friends, family and colleagues. But when the call goes out every Sunday morning to come to City Hall, to come to this church building, as the citizens of the kingdom to petition and meet with the king and to hear his decrees read out, we become the gathered church. But you know what happens after the service is over? after you've drank your coffee, after you've chatted with people, you get into your car and you drive away home. And now you are the scattered church. You're still the church, but you're scattered. Scattered to your homes, to your places of work, and to touching the lives of others out there in society. There's a very well-known verse of Scripture in Revelation and it's Jesus speaking. And here's what he says. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will enter in. And we will share a meal together as friends. We will fellowship together. Now, this is really interesting because we, this is the door of a house. They didn't have church buildings 
they would meet in the temple court, they would rent the lecture hall of Tyrannus, wherever they were, when they wanted a big group to gather together, they, rent, they didn't have church buildings in those days, they would meet in rented facilities, but also in homes. And Jesus is saying, let me into your home. Now, instantly we think, you know, in Bible times they had something called house churches, and today lots of people have house churches as well. And house churches are very popular in many countries, but they're an absolute necessity in some countries. In some countries that are ruled by communism or by Sharia law, it is against the law to be a Christian and to gather with other Christians and worship, them, worship Jesus together. So you have to do it in secret. You just make it look like you've invited a few friends to house, to the house. You shut all the windows and lock all the doors and soundproof the room so you can sing and worship and read the Bible together. And house churches are a persecution-proof model of church. When you're not allowed to meet publicly, maybe you can meet in house churches. The largest church in the world is in Seoul, Korea. It has just under a million members, one congregation, just under a million members. And the senior pastor of that, they have tens of thousands of cell groups that meet in homes and apartments all over the city. And the senior pastor has a recorded message that if North Korea ever invades South Korea, the message is automatically sent. And the cell phones of all the small group leaders ring, and they hear a message saying, this is your senior pastor. North Korea, the communists, have invaded. By the time you hear this, the pastors, we will either be arrested or dead. You cannot gather to church on a Sunday anymore. That cell group that meets in your apartment, that's now your church, and you're now the pastor. God bless you and goodbye. That's it. That's the message. They're going to meet in secret because they're, if they are under persecution. But we learned something over the last year and a half. Even a persecution-proof system doesn't always work if you're not allowed to invite anybody to your house. Maybe we need more than a persecution-proof system. Maybe we need a pandemic-proof system. And in that way, you don't have to go to someone else's house or invite 14 people to your house, if there's two or three of you, you can have church and be church in your own home. You can invite Jesus to be the head of your home and to be present in your home. Look at this next verse in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, I think it's Matthew, the next, whatever the next one is. Yeah, Matthew 18. Jesus said, now I want you to think about the ecclesia. I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. The binding and the loosing, the petitioning the king to stop something bad and to bring in something good. He's, they would immediately have thought of the ecclesia. I also tell you this, unless you own a building, a sound system, and have 200 people, you cannot call yourself a church. Is that what he said? Is it? He said, I tell you this, if 
two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask my father in he- anything you ask my father in heaven will do it for you for where two or three gather together as my followers i am there in the midst look Maybe you're a husband, and you've got a wife, and you've got a four-year-old little girl. There's three of you. You are a church in your home. Yeah, we don't have a little girl yet. Well, there's two of you. Two or three gathered together. Yeah, I'm not married. Nobody wants me. Okay, right. But you, you have two housemates that share an apartment with you, and they're Christians, where two or three gather together as my followers. The presence of Jesus is there, especially if you have opened the door and invited him to come in and be present in your house. You can turn your own house, your own family, your own meal times, your own living room, whatever it may be, into the place where the ecclesia, maybe only two or three, but where the scattered church can worship, can read the Scriptures, and can grow in faith. I want to finish with a quote from Ed Silvoso, and you might remember that we actually did this. Um, we did this back, not this year, but the previous year, back when we did uh, pa- uh, Passover, I'm wanting to say, Good Friday, Good Friday, right? We did a Good Friday meal. We did an online thing, and I said to you, do this, have a meal while you watch the video. And here's what Ed Ed Silvoso says. He's a famous missionary from Latin America, and he says, do these three things. Number one, invite Jesus into your home to be the head and to come and fellowship. Maybe get your family or your housemates together and actually go to the front door and open it symbolically and say, Jesus, we hear you knock on the door of our family. Come on in. Be the head of this house. Make this house your home, Lord. Number two, have a Sabbath-type meal with your household, your family or your housemates, one, one night a week, one day a week, say we're going to sit together at the table, we're going to eat a meal together, we're going to take communion together, some bread and wine as part of this meal. Someone's going to read a little passage from Scripture. We're going to chat, we're going to talk, we're going to laugh, we're going to tell jokes, and then we're going to say a prayer for one another. And there, you've just had Book of Acts-style New Testament church. Thirdly, adopt your street. Have a list of all the people that live there and pray for your neighbors and ask God to show you ways to serve them and bless them. Could you imagine if every street in this city had a house or an apartment in it that was doing this, that was welcoming Jesus in, that was having a little three or four person church in the home over a meal once a week and was writing the names of all the neighbors and was praying for them regularly and looking for ways to bless them? Could you imagine if every street had one house like that? It wouldn't matter if they made Christianity illegal, shot all the pastors and bulldozed all the buildings flat. 
the kingdom of God would grow like wildfire in every street and in every community because you would be binding and loosing as you prayed. You would be forbidding the problems that are attacking your neighbors and loosing, releasing the blessing of God upon them and seeing them come to Christ too. Now you might say, I'm new to all this and so is my family and we, would, we don't know how to pray out loud together. Yes, you do. There it is. Jesus told you. Let's do it. Come on, let's stand. If all you can pray is the Lord's Prayer, then you are praying the best prayer ever prayed because it was written by Jesus himself, okay? Let's look at the prayer. Let's lift up our hands on the count of three. One, two, three. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Give God a praise, church. Come on.